Progress vs. Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Part 6. New Threats to Free Societies. Chapter 19. Alternative Models Emerge. Back in the 1970s, the leaders of the world's leading industrial countries, the United States, Germany, Japan, France, Britain, Canada and Italy, started to hold annual get-togethers. This gathering came to be known as the Group of Seven meeting, or just G7. Back then, the G7 countries collectively accounted for the lion's share of global output. They still do today, but they're not quite in a league of their own anymore. Already, Italy and Canada have fallen out of the list of the world's seven largest economies. If one was to issue invitations to the leaders of the seven biggest economies today, instead of Italy or Canada, one would need to include the Prime Minister of India, which has now overtaken France, and the President of China, who sits second only to the US. To avoid having to uninvite anyone, however, the organisers of the G7 added to the guest list, extending invitations to the leaders of the 20 biggest economies instead. This new grouping, the G20, includes countries such as Turkey, Argentina, Indonesia and Saudi Arabia too. But if those on the original guest list, such as Italy, Canada, Britain and France, still want to make the cut in 2040, the organisers are going to have to make it the G30, or possibly even the G40. You see, some of those that were leading economies in terms of output within living memory will soon just be pretty average. 40 years ago, Western states combined accounted for 60% of global output. Today, that Western total is less than half. By 2040, it'll be about a third. A massive pull of plant and capital is underway towards economies that a few decades ago could barely feed themselves. It's almost as if we're reverting back to the way things were before the 19th century, when the biggest share of world economic activity happened in China, India and elsewhere, rather than in Europe and North America. Perhaps we should no longer assume that what we call Western liberal democracies are intrinsically more conducive to economic growth and innovation than other parts of the planet. Might it be that there are alternative models emerging that do exchange and innovation better? That the rest of the world's catching up is, is no bad thing. In fact, it's very good. It's one of the reasons why the world's getting better. Britain might today only account for 2% or so of global economic output rather than 4 or 5% a generation ago. But unless you're a mercantilist or a madman, why is that a problem? Our relative unimportance might dent the proper more of the kind of official who attends G7 summits, but the rest of us are no worse off. Quite the opposite, in fact. India's output is expected to eclipse our own within a few years if it hasn't already done so by some measures. Yet we'll be much better off in a world where there are hundreds of millions of middle-class Indians able to afford the things that we in Britain produce. The world's not only seeing a shift in the centre of economic gravity, global demographics are undergoing a profound change too. The populations of China and India continue to increase, even if the rates of growth are slowing pretty rapidly. But it's other parts of the planet where the numbers are rising really very fast indeed. 
1980, there were about 30 million Ethiopians. Today, there are almost three times that many. By 1940, they're expected to be about 164 million Ethiopians. Almost a quarter of a billion people now live in Indonesia. Within 20 years or so, there will be an additional 50 million of them. Saudi Arabia had a population of 9 million in 1980. In 20 years, there are projected to be over 43 million Saudis. Yemen, which not so very long ago had a population the size of New Zealand, will, according to some estimates, be home to 60 million people by 2050. Countries like Tanzania, which a couple of generations ago had a population about the size of Switzerland's, are projected to have over 100 million people within a generation or two. The population of Tanzania's largest city, Dar es Salaam, alone, according to some estimates, will have a bigger population than the whole of France by 2000. Of course, we should treat such forecasts with a degree of scepticism. Birth rates can fall far faster than experts expect. But even if these demographic growth rates are only half right, there'll be an awful lot more people living in Africa, Asia and the Middle East in a generation or so, relative to the number of people in Europe and North America, even with large-scale immigration from the former to the latter. What might life be like for those living within some of the large cities, the super cities of the future, such as Lagos, population estimated to be 40 million by 2050, or Karachi, estimated to be 30 million by then, or Kinshasa, aimed to have a population of 35 million people by mid-century. Will those living in these teeming cities enjoy a standard of living higher than they do today, and possibly even a higher one than we in the West currently have? Or are these huge new cities of the future going to become, in effect, super slums? Perhaps you might find the idea that someone in Karachi or Lagos might one day have a higher living standard than you in the rich Western world enjoy today difficult to imagine. But ask yourself what someone in 18th century England or America might have thought of the idea that London or New York might one day be a home to six or seven million people. They would no doubt have assumed that any city of such a size would be a scene of gargantuan squalor. They would have found it hard to envisage that a city of such a size would be anything other than a bigger version of what was already there. That's not, of course, how things have turned out. Those living today in New York and London have vastly better living standards than when such cities were settlements of only a fraction their current size. Indeed, we're rich precisely because the size and density of these new urban surroundings. What's going to determine future living standards in not just Lagos, but London and Manhattan as much as Mumbai, is not the total number of people living in these cities, but whether or not specialisation and exchange are able to continue to expand the output per person. How likely is this to happen? For many years it was commonplace amongst educated elites in Britain, America and Europe to see non-Western parts of the world as just a poorer, less developed version of themselves. Given enough time and condescension, 
these less happy people would eventually end up being like the West, it was assumed. If anything, however, we're seeing signs that some of the emerging economies are developing in a distinctly different direction to our own. What if some of the fast-growing economies are not just catching up, but instead offer an alternative model for growth? Look at, for example, the recent achievement of China or Ethiopia. Economic output since the start of this century is up over 400% in China and almost 300% in Ethiopia. Yet neither is in any sense a liberal democracy. China is a one-party state controlled by the Communist Party. Ethiopia might have some of the trappings of a democracy. But in reality it's an autocracy where the government doesn't tolerate much in the way of dissent and democracy exists only under license. Democracy per se has never been a prerequisite for progress. What counts is constraint upon the powerful and democracy is just one way of doing it. Throughout history other influences, other forms of constitutional constraint or simple geography have sometimes had the same effect. Countries like China and Ethiopia certainly don't have much democracy to constrain their rulers. But within these states, there's an openness to specialisation and exchange that wasn't there before. Outsiders have been encouraged to invest. Regulation has been reasonable, or relatively reasonable, and administered in a way that enables outside businesses to do business. Trade, particularly using digital channels, has taken off. Might there therefore be some sort of economically free, but politically constrained alternative in such states? Might there be economically laissez-faire but politically authoritarian? And might this work better at expanding output per person than our Western way of doing things? A generation ago, the Soviet system was seen by many as precisely that. The Soviets undoubtedly achieved some extraordinary increases in GDP. Partly this was an inevitable consequence of switching from a predominantly agricultural economy to an industrial one. Far from being a credible alternative model to the Western one, however, the output that the Soviet system engineered by command and control was not matched by a corresponding increase in demand, meaning that Russia ended up with too many tractors and too few consumer goods. Without a system of specialisation exchange to allocate resources, growth stalled after all the initial advances. In time, the Soviet model provided a pretty good example of how not to develop. A lot of the growth we've seen so far in China, Ethiopia and indeed in Indonesia is due to a large injection of capital meeting with large numbers of people. As the rural population floods into cities and moves from agriculture to industry, output per person leaps ahead. Whether these increases are sustainable depends on the extent to which specialisation exchange are allowed to continue. None of these states, of course, comes even close to the Soviet system in terms of having a command and control economy. Quite the opposite, in fact. Inward flows of investment are allowed, together with a relatively benign regulatory environment. I say relatively. But what are the chances that in time, those with power in Beijing, Addis Ababa or Jakarta like those in Putin's Moscow, get in the way of free exchange. 
Some might say we're even beginning to see this today in China. Relying on the self-restraint of those with political power is unlikely to be enough. After the Soviet system failed, Russia was, it was said, likely to move towards the Western model. Elections were held and the economy apparently liberalised. Yet, despite all that heady optimism, we now know that after a period of chaos, Russia has in reality veered off in a very different direction. Turkey too was supposed to have westernised. Under Ataturk, she threw out her old alphabet as well as all sorts of antiquated ways. She was a democracy for more years in the 20th century than Germany was. Yet today she seems to be heading back towards something more traditional, something Ottoman perhaps, rather than Tsarist. Following an apparent coup attempt in 2016, thousands of the government's critics have been locked up. Having interfered in civil society, Turkey's Islamist political elite is starting to intervene in the workings of the day-to-day -day economy. Now, China's never made much of a pretense at being a democracy. Yet for much of the past 40 years, she certainly seemed to be liberalising. Deng Xiaoping's reform of the early 1980s meant a new constitution, preventing any one person or faction from holding too much power for too long. Autonomy was granted to different maritime provinces, and special economic zones were created as places of innovation and experimentation. The centre let go. Yet since 2012, China seems to have taken a very different trajectory. President Xi did away with Deng's term limits, making himself a leader for life. Xi's cultivated a personality cult not seen since Mao. Deng's reforms seem to be unravelling. Beijing's bureaucracy has become more involved and more intrusive. The authorities have created a new range of restrictions on China's digital economy, making firms seek permission for all sorts of things and then withholding permission for apparently arbitrary reasons. A long and growing list of outside internet firms have been banned from China, including Google, Facebook, YouTube, Netflix, WhatsApp, and many others. Some might see in this an ulterior motive, economic nationalism. Keeping out big US digital giants, they imply, is a way of ensuring that a Chinese alternative emerges. Maybe. Or maybe it's the 21st century version of banning the printing press, which is what the Ming did. China's own digital firms such as Tencent have suffered at the hands of arbitrary rulemaking, having various regulatory permissions revoked without warning. This is the sort of behaviour that one might have expected to see if China was still ruled by the Ming. And if a society is ruled by those that behave like the Ming, imposing restrictive practices on everything, it will share the fate of 16th century China. Stagnation will set in, followed by decline. History is littered with states that showed precocious promise without going on to achieve sustained progress. China has, in a way, been here before. 
If Turkey's President Erdogan and his successors recreate a 21st century version of the old Ottoman Sultanate, Turkey will suffer the sort of stagnation that she experienced in that earlier age. She'll become like Russia, whose leader behaves like a modern czar, and whose economy is now smaller than the economy of Texas or Spain. She will become peripheral, stagnant and marginal. Democracy doesn't necessarily produce better leaders. Often it patently doesn't. For every great president, prime minister or consul that democracy has produced, it's also delivered plenty of duds. For every Lincoln, Churchill or Scipio Africanus, there have been all too many Richard Nixons and Lyndon Johnsons. Charlatans at worst, mediocrities at best. I could also mention Theresa May, John Major, and a long list of British Prime Ministers. A technocracy tends to install in high office those who on paper, and in theory anyway, are better qualified to decide. But that's the point. They might be better qualified to decide. But with that becomes, comes the presumption that they should be deciding. In a democracy where the demos are the ultimate arbiters, there's a greater chance that the natural inclination of elites to try to decide things will be kept in check. That means there's more space for the possibility that human economic and social affairs might be left to order themselves. A really important point about democracy is not that it creates institutional constraint, but constraints on the moral authority of elites to act and to intervene. It's impossible to be quite so hands-on in trying to order the affairs of the masses when the masses have a say over what happens. Electorates are unpredictable. Mandates are necessarily time-limited. Experts who would rather make public policy without the inconvenience of an electoral cycle have to contend with what ordinary folk might make of it. Voters might well make a wrong decision. And it's in that very notion of wrongness, people not conforming with some small elite's idea of what shape society ought to take, that the real significance of democracy sits. Democracy means that there's a much greater chance that social and economic affairs will be able to order themselves. And this being so, democracies are far more prone to progress. We don't know if we're seeing a temporary blip amongst some of the emerging economies like Turkey or China, or if these countries are now heading off in a decidedly more dirigiste direction. What we can be sure of is that if they do become less open to exchange and innovation, even if they don't necessarily veer off towards greater autocracy, this reduced openness will in the longer term ensure that these states become less successful. About 30 years ago, many American politicians were obsessed about Japan, seeing it as a great threat. Given open access to US markets after the Second World War, Japan enjoyed remarkable economic growth in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. So much so, in fact, that in one sector after another, ball bearings, machine tools, cameras, shipbuilding, semiconductors, electronics, Japanese companies started to dominate the marketplace. 
Between 1960 and 1980, Japan's share of world car production rose from 1% to 23%. With Japanese exports flooding overseas markets, earnings poured back. Japan then started to invest in new wealth by buying up American businesses, including iconic companies such as Hollywood's Columbia Pictures. Her banks established enormous property portfolios across US cities. All this would lead, some feared, to Japanese hegemony. A book even appeared in the New York Times bestseller list predicting a coming war with an aggressive militaristic Japan. Some even suggested that Japan was such a regimented society, she was almost some kind of new Spartan state. Of course, none of that came to pass. Japan remains a democracy. She's also really struggled economically. The Japanese model that everyone once went on about turned out not to be such a great way to innovate and grow after all. Far from eclipsing America, Japan's economy has flatlined since the early 1990s. Japanese household income per person in 2017 is what it was in 2000. To try to lift her out of her economic funk, Successive Japanese governments have spent so much money that they've managed to accumulate the highest levels of public debt as an expression of GDP in the world. Japan led the way when the Sony Walkman was the cutting edge of consumer technology. But since then, Japan's missed out on a lot of digital innovation altogether. She's produced remarkably few digital giants. Her economy, dominated by giant cartel-forming companies, has produced few innovations and few innovators. To grasp the extent of Japan's slowdown, try to imagine for a moment that America today had only IBM and no Apple, or that Oracle was America's leading information provider rather than Google. Japan shows us that we should never assume that an economy will continue to grow rapidly just because it did in the past. If specialisation and exchange is in any way inhibited, growth and innovation slow down no matter how much your economy might have advanced before. Post-war Japan grew as a large post-war population entered the labour market alongside a massive injection of capital. But with that massive injection of capital came a massive misallocation of credit. Dud Japanese investments were never allowed to fail. A lot of bad debt grew. Asset prices were chronically overinflated by the late 1980s. Japanese growth was all about exports, making much of her output contingent on meeting overseas demand, not necessarily a domestic one. That Japanese model that emerged also meant having a few very large producers in each sector. This, of course, was great for export growth, with all kinds of efficiencies and economies of scale made possible. But such an approach that was good at gaining overseas market share was never quite so good at enabling innovation and new entrants. Large Japanese conglomerates acquired cosy relations with officialdom, a kind of crony corporatism emerged. Japan's economy has slowed for all sorts of reasons, but the fact her economy is dominated by large conglomerates 
many of whom are export dependent, able to keep out any competition, and up to their eyeballs in debt, is a large part of the problem. No amount of government spending can compensate for it or make Japan dynamic again. Of course, it's no longer Japan that's spoken of as being a strategic threat to America, but China instead. China's increasingly seen by some as a sort of new Sparta. Indeed, there's even talk in Washington of America and China supposedly being stuck in a sort of Thucydides trap, a reference to the way that Sparta and Athens were seemingly unable to avoid conflict as one waxed while the other waned. Maybe. We can't know for sure what the future holds, but we shouldn't repeat the error of assuming that China is inexorably set on a path of ascendancy. China's economic dynamism is ultimately a function of how open to innovation and exchange she is. And China, too, may be about to turn a little bit more Japanese than she might like to admit. Within China, some very large export-orientated corporations have emerged with close symbiotic relations with officialdom. In China, too, a kind of crony corporatism is emerging. It's not always clear where big business ends and officialdom in China begins. Rather like Japan in the late 1980s, there's an awful lot of bad debt in China, as well as some seriously overinflated asset prices. China and some of the other emerging economies could be a credit cycle or so away from going the way of Japan. The Z-era system of top-down controls and more arbitrary rulemaking will, in time, mean less dynamism and growth. But then again, maybe it's not just China that's begun to turn a little Japanese. Perhaps we in the West have as well. There's an awful lot of bad debt and crony capitalism in Europe and America as well. When pundits talk of there being alternatives to the Western model, what they usually mean is some sort of non-Western way of doing things emerging somewhere in the world. But what if the alternative model to emerge is within the West itself? Could it be that the West has changed, incrementally, undeclared and almost imperceptibly, towards a very different kind of political economy over the past few decades? Perhaps the threat to free societies comes not from a Sparta on the outside, but the corruption of Athens from within. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress vs. Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.